Thanksgiving if you are American. If you aren't American, then happy Thursday. Or as I like to call it, Deviant Day. You are listening to Feel Free to Deviate, the podcast about people, their careers, and their relationships with success. My name is Jim Turbert, and I am the host. The guest on this episode is Ben Licata. He's an old friend who currently makes his living as a tattoo artist. We talk about how his illustrious career began in the tobacco fields of Hadley, Massachusetts, and how he's always found a way to grow and learn whether working in a sweltering plastic bag factory or making instructional videos with distinguished tattoo artists. I admire that he finds opportunities that are based on his interests, but also that he isn't afraid to do whatever needs to be done to make a living. He's also a great bass player. I really like this episode, and I feel like we could have gone on forever if he didn't have an appointment. In fact, I've been thinking about how to deal with this one because it's, it's a little long. Normally, I'd whittle it down to about an hour, but because it's Thanksgiving and you might need something to listen to if you're trying to avoid your family, I'm leaving it the way it is. At first, I was going to divide it into two, but I thought that would bust up the flow. I was also thinking that maybe I could make bonus episodes for some of the excess non-career-related prattle. I've been told that some people like that sort of thing. Regardless of what I do in the future, the present is a plus-sized episode of Feel Free to Deviate. If it's too long for you, I suggest consuming the pod in bites. Use the pause button and come back to it later. That's how I do it, and I do not think it adversely affects my podcast consumption. At the very least, I think it's better than waiting a week or two for the rest of the conversation. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode and any turkey-shaped protein you may be consuming today. All right, let's get started with Ben. So how are you? Oh, I, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm good. I, Other than being unemployed? I'm, <laughs> I'm unemployed and a little stressed out, but yeah. I'm yeah. Good. How are you managing being like a parent and being unemployed? That's a good question. I, I um just doing stuff. I'm keeping busy, trying to get a job. And I am fortunate enough that my lady makes enough to take care of things. I'm putting off doing freelancing work because I'd rather rather have a job job. Right, because as, as a freelancer, you're just constantly looking for work. And I hate it. That was one of the things I, I really disliked about being a contractor. Yeah. You're always talking to the next person, trying to find the next job and trying to convince someone that you're the right person to do that job. It was like constantly being unemployed. My My wife works for herself and... As far as I can tell, she always seems to feel that she has to say yes to everything and things come, they seem to come all at the same time. So it's either mass hysteria and insanity for three, four months at a time, then the stress from not having a job for two months or whatever, or not having enough jobs or not thinking you do. And instead of just looking at it as like over the timeline, you know, you've got this three month period of intense work that ho- hopefully will pay to average, average the rest of the year out. It's hard. I don't want that kind of stress in my life. I'd much prefer to have a a schedule. Are you going to get some sponsors for this podcast? Hopefully someday. I don't have enough downloaders yet, though. So, yeah. I did a podcast from 2012 to 2018, and uh, getting sponsors was a pain in the butt. All right. Well, we're going to talk about that. Cool. Hey, I'm just going to close this door behind me. This is the guest room in my house. used to be occupied by my oldest daughter. Oh, she moved out. Yeah, both my kids are moved out. My oldest just turned 25. Zoe. Yes. Yes. I don't remember I the other one's name. What's the other one's name? Alexa. Alexa. I did know that, but I forgot. Yes. <laughs> she's, she's very mad about that because of Jeff Bezos. 
<laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I didn't know. I couldn't see the future with that one. Did you watch Game of Thrones? Oh, yes. I was listening to the, what's it called? Wait, wait, don't tell me, the NPR podcast. A guy called in last week, I think, and his name was Joffrey. Oh, no. <laughs> Everyone hated that guy. I mean, who, how could you not hate that guy? He's the worst. Which just means that actor was really good at being so, well, terrible. Yeah. He is. But then, but then, you know, he's a child. So now he has to grow up being that guy whose face everybody hates. Yeah. Could you imagine? <laughs> I can't. It's like being Malfoy in the, in, the, in the Harry Potter movies or something. He's like, he'll always be Malfoy. I know. You could just be at a restaurant and feel these eyes on you. And people will not like you. Yeah. They won't even realize why they don't like you. <laughs> There's something There's about just, that guy. Oh, that, I don't know, man. I think that he's, guy's a jerk. He's got hardcore Joffrey vibes. Totally. <laughs> ben Licata, I asked you to be on the show for several reasons. I selfishly want to talk to you because you're an old friend. But sticking with the theme of the show, I asked you to be here because I think you are a successful person. You run your own business, which was born of your interests, and you maintain healthy extracurricular activities. As time goes on, that is becoming my version of what success is. That said, I'm open to discussing and integrating the ideas of others. Thank you for being here. I'm happy to be here. Good. Yeah, this is, this is cool. I haven't talked to you in person in a really long time, and it's nice to, uh, to see your face. I try to ask people if they think of themselves as being successful as a way to start. I have already said that I think of you as being successful. Do, do you think of yourself as being successful? Only up recently, within the last year or so, I've actually started thinking about myself as being successful. Up until that point, I always felt as though I was almost there. It's because I'm happy now, and I realize I'm happy now. Financially, I'm about the same. I never have a lot of money, but I'm never like short on money. Yeah. So, but I'm happier, and I kind of realize that I'm happier, and that to me feels more like success. And I'm doing what I love. Yeah, I would say I feel like I'm successful now. It's a long way to, to put that. It's no, I think it's a good way to put it. And I, I think that you hit on all of the points, I, you know, happiness, whatever, call it happiness, call it contentedness, call it whatever you want. It sounds to me like we're on the same page and, <laughs> and, and you have done what you're supposed to do at this point of your life. I was reflecting the other, not the other day, weeks, months ago. I don't know. I realized that I don't want anything. Like, in my life, I've always been like, I could use a new car. I really want that guitar. Right now, I don't want anything. I'm fine. I, I'm happy with the things I have, the people I spend time with, the hours I work. For the first time, I feel like I'm good, which is kind of nice. So when you were younger, say in the, early, in the early Hadley days, in the days of our early to mid-20s, what were your feelings then? So... I had gone to community college out of high school in 1992, before I had met any of that crowd. I'd gone to community college as a fine arts major, planning on being an artist, whatever that meant. I really didn't know what I was doing out of high school. I flirted with the idea of joining the military, and I went to rifle training at Fort Devens and learned how to field strip a automatic rifle. I realized that the people that were there were not the people I wanted to spend the next four years of my life with. So I went to community college, didn't do so great in my academic stuff. Art-wise, I was good, but I just couldn't stay there anymore. I'm going to back up a little. I started working the day of my 14th birthday, because that's when I could get a work permit. So my mom drove me to the local 
administrative office and I got a work permit on my 14th birthday and she drove me to tobacco fields in Connecticut and I started picking tobacco. Oh, damn. Yeah. At 14. That sounds like such a like pre-depression era story, but kids in the eighties, they did that. That's yeah. No, I know. Yeah. We picked tobacco. Did you pick tobacco? I did not. I did not. That would have required my parents driving me somewhere. My parents did not drive me anywhere ever. After that first day, uh, I was picked up on a really old school bus that would drive me from Montague, Massachusetts to Hadley. And they had farms in Hadley and just over the line in Connecticut. But I would spend like an hour and a half on a terrible rickety school bus that was filthy with a little cooler with a bad sandwich and a store brand soda in it. And I would pick tobacco for $3.86 an hour. That's good money. But the best detail for me is the store brand soda. It says so much. At the time, my mom had just gotten remarried and uh, I had two stepbrothers and two younger brothers. So there were five boys in the house. If there was going to be soda, it was going to be store brand soda. We had store brand Kool-Aid. We had store brand bread. Oh, yeah. We had store brand everything. Store brand ice cream sandwiches were actually better than the hood ones, I think. Just, Just putting that out there. I buy store brand English muffins because I think they're better than the big brand because I can pop them apart with my fingers instead of having to use a stupid fork. That's pretty great. And I would do, I would probably do that too, but they don't sell freaking English muffins here. No, I, every time we go home, I buy, I, that's, we, we buy English muffins. I love those things. I eat them almost daily. Um, the reason I was working, uh, was because I had all those brothers. So that's why I had to start. Cause I had, my mom would buy us socks and underwear and everything else was up to us. So if I wanted jeans to wear to school i had to work yeah no i hear you and, and it doesn't actually really surprise me not because of you know large family issues but i was th- when i first met you i was like that dude looks like joe strummer he's like the he's like the spokesman <laughs> of the proletariat <laughs> well yeah back then i had this the slicked back hair and whatnot i'm a little different now my hair is like you know four feet long that's good. I, I, I would grow mine out too if I wouldn't look ridiculous because my hair's thinning and it's awful now. But, um, but yeah, I appreciate the flowing mane. It helps when you're in a metal band. That's really the only purpose. That and impressing me. So I left college as a failure. I did definitely did not feel successful there. I had to get a job. I worked at like a dollar store. And then eventually got a job working at a plastics plant. And... I was running a machine that would manufacture plastic garbage bags. So it would shoot them out really fast at me, and uh, I would have to take them off this machine, fold them up in a specific way, and put them in a box. And it would just do that for 12 hours. Constantly trash bags, trash bag, trash bag. And it sucked. It totally it doesn't sucked. doesn't sound great. <laughs> yeah, it was, I was working 8 at night till 8 in the morning. It was really hot in there because it was a plastics plant. So it was like, you know, 90 to 100 degrees year round. And I wasn't making a lot of money. But there was a guy there that was running around and filling up machines with plastic pellets and making adjustments to knobs and things. And I'm like, I can do that. So I started doing his job and my job. And the supervisor saw that. and They're like, oh, you shouldn't be on a machine anymore. You should go do this. So they gave me that job. Within a year, I was a foreman at that same plastics plant running a shift, and I was 19 years old. That's initiative, man. And that has been a theme in my life, as always learning things. Learn the next thing, learn the next thing, learn the next thing. Right. And that has been a key to my success, I believe. 
always wanting to learn how things work, especially in a job situation. That's interesting. And it makes sense to me. I think that that uh, trait is a key ingredient. Do you think that that trait is innate or is it something that you learned after starting to work early? I believe that the, the, the curiosity about wanting to know how things work and how things are done is innate. Learning how to apply it in a job situation definitely came early for me because I started working at 14. But I think you know, I was the kind of kid that would take his toys apart and take the, take the radio apart and not necessarily put it back together the right way. But yeah, so I was a pretty curious kid. And I think that kind of, that is, a, I would say is probably innate. Applying it to work is learned. That characteristic has carried throughout my entire life to get me to where I am now. I remember there was a time that you lost your job or maybe you quit and you started working with Craig doing construction. Plastics plant job was so terrible that I decided that I was going to save up some money and get the hell out of Western Massachusetts and the heck uh, get away from that job and go see what is out there because I was making really good money there. Yeah. While I'm saving money and working there, I meet Gretchen and Craig and all of those people. Okay. For listeners, Gretchen is my wife of 23 years. So I meet her and I'm like, this is my plan. I'm trying to save money. I want to get the hell out of here. Do you want to go with me? And I left the plastics place. I had a series of smaller jobs, lived in a crazy house for a while with Gretchen. And then we did a road trip, which was just her and I in a van visiting friends and just seeing the country. It was pretty nice to just get up and not know where I was going. And That's very cool. Let's go to the Grand Canyon. Let's go see these ruins. Um, yeah. But as, you know, as happens, Gretchen got pregnant while we were living in the van. That sometimes happens when you're in the van. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's not a lot of things to do. Uh, <laughs> so instead of being able to just be nomadic and travel around and figure out where we wanted to live, um, in a panic, we came home because security. So we came home and I immediately had to get a job. This is going to sound like a repeat of the plastics job. I went to a temp agency. They gave me a job building shelves in a warehouse. I went there, was building shelves with a bunch of other people that were there from the temp agency building shelves. And I just kind of organized them and started directing people. Like Joe Strummer would. I suppose. <laughs> so, I'm like, all right, you go get those things. And then you go, go get these. And, and um, after the shelves were built, uh, we had like the crew got halved because they didn't need as many people and they kept me. So then we were labeling and inventorying and I'm like suggesting like, why don't we put barcodes on everything so that we can track things? Sure. And they were like, oh, that's a really good idea. Innovating the process. Right. And I was just a temp hired to build shelves, but they asked me to be the manager of that warehouse. Yeah, cool. So I became the manager and the shipping receiver person at that warehouse. Yeah. As a aside, I was where I stole my first copy of Adobe Photoshop and learned Photoshop. They're going to call you and want some payment for that. Adobe got paid. I stole it from the art department at the place I was working. Okay, cool. Worked at that crappy place for a while. Got laid off. Got a job at an auto parts store. It was terrible. You could smoke inside there, so people just smoked all day. And Craig came in one day and was like, hey, we need help at my father's contracting company. Would you be interested? And that's how I began working with Craig. 
I had very little carpentry experience at the time, but I wanted to learn how to build my own house. Mm-hmm. So this was a perfect opportunity for me. Yeah. It was like, I can go be a carpenter's apprentice under Craig's dad. Sure. And learn the skills I need to learn how to build a house. And I get to work with Craig, who's like, I mean, you know, Craig. He was, I do. I can imagine it's very fun to work with him. Coolest dude ever. That's interesting. So we've established that when you get these jobs, you go in there, you make yourself, uh, you endear yourself to the employees. They, they find you a necessary or a valuable asset and, and, and they promote you and you, you go through this system. I'm interested in you learning carpentry to build your own house because I remember talking with you while you, during this period where you were talking about, I don't want to use Home Depot doors. I want like beautiful doors and I want the thing and I want a tree in the middle of my house. And I want to, and you were telling me all these crazy plans that you had for this house that you wanted to build. Did you build that house? I did. <laughs> yes. So I have very fancy doors and I have I I have um, a sugar maple tree in the middle of my house. <laughs> For real. Is that problematic? <laughs> well, I, no, it's been cut down and the bark has been peeled. So, but it's it's in the center of my house holding the loft uh, of my house. So yeah, I did do that. That is amazing. That end of the podcast is over. <laughs> I don't think I don't think we need to explain why you're why you're successful. You you've just you've just told us. Well, I, all right, cool. All right, I'll, uh, <laughs> later. Thanks a lot. This has been great. <laughs> I learned I learned how to build a house, not that quickly. You know, started by picking up shingles, that kind of stuff. Yeah, of course. Um, picked up a lot from his father. His father was a is a, a main the state of Maine, like he's just like a real Mainer. Like he knows how to do things. Like, I don't know how to explain that to people that don't know. I understand it. Maybe people that aren't from the East coast of the United States wouldn't understand that. It's hardcore working class work ethic. Absolutely. And it's hardcore do it yourselfers. He would do anything. He wasn't too good to do anything. Like he he was the boss, but he would also spend three hours in a hole trying to, you know, dig it in the mud and things like if that. If it needs to get done, he's going to do it. Absolutely. And he was very smart. He knew he was a, uh, a problem solver, uh, which I really related to. And I learned a lot from him. He taught me many, many things. And uh, without Craig's dad, I would not know how to build anything. And that's why I have this house. He was definitely a good influence on me. I worked with Craig and his father for years, learning more skills and whatnot. And we got the opportunity to work on a really big project. Um, we were doing a lot of historic restoration. And I got offered a job to restore a very large building um, in a downtown area. Craig's father wasn't interested. Uh -huh. um, so I proposed to Craig that maybe we start our own business and this will be our jumping off point with this large project. Yeah. And that's what we did. We formed uh, a company of just us two as partners. Oh, nice. We would use his father um, as like a consultant because he was doing different smaller jobs and he, would, he just didn't want to do this huge project. And in hindsight, he was absolutely correct. We probably shouldn't have. We probably shouldn't have done that large project either. With with age comes wisdom. <laughs> yes. Uh, he was, you know, rarely was he wrong. And, uh, but I was trying to get to a point where I could be comfortable. I never had money ever. No matter what, um, I would earn it. I would spend it. 
it didn't matter what my yearly total was. I would earn it. I would spend it. Um, I've always been pretty terrible with money. That has been the biggest impediment to my success. For sure. Okay. I'm terrible with money and I ignore problems. So <laughs> if the bank was trying to collect the mortgage and I didn't have it, instead of telling them I don't have it, I would just pretend they didn't send the letter, which does not work. It's not the best strategy. If you're listening to this and you're ignoring debts, stop it. Just own up to it. It's way less painful just to take care of it. That slowed me down for many years is not not taking care of that kind of thing. And that's definitely been one of my biggest problems. I'm better with it now because I realized I was being an idiot. Lose a little ego and you're like, oh, yeah, you're just being dumb. Yeah, sure. But it's, it's like that with 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 everything. You just sort of, yeah, you just like accept things <laughs> for like, OK, this is a problem. I, you know, it's not going to go away. Right. I got to do something about it. Yeah. And I, I didn't for a long time. Which didn't help me in my business with, with Craig. It actually, you know, because um, he was the opposite. He took care of things right away. I was not. So that was, you know, conflict sometimes. But the business did really well. Um, there came a time when Craig wanted to raise his kids on the West Coast. So one day he was like, look, man, I'm going to move my family to California. And that left me with a decision because I had this business that I had started with Craig based on the knowledge I learned from him and his father. Do I keep this project going or do I try something else? I decided that I didn't want to do it anymore. My hands were hurting. You know, it was hard for me to get off the couch because my knees hurt all the time. It was a very physical job. That's rough. Yeah. And I was approaching 40 at that point And. I was like, well, I guess I'm going to stop doing this. And what helped me make that decision is towards the, the last couple years of being a contractor, I had started hosting a podcast. That's what I was going to ask you about. Was it, on, was it on YouTube? Was there a video component or was it? It was a live YouTube video podcast. Okay. Live. Yeah. Um, I would edit it after the fact and upload it, but it went out live. Right. Which was terrifying. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, because some, you know, not every guest is a is a great one. Sometimes they're duds. <laughs> of course. And also, you think we've already discussed how much editing goes into cutting out ums and ahs and oohs and you knows and... Hours. <laughs> absolutely. You cut out things like absolutely's. Um, so, yes, the, the last few years of the, the carpentry thing... Um, I was hosting a live podcast for tattoo artists. I've been getting tattooed since the early 90s. Um, I've always been interested in it since junior high school. Yeah. Um, I would trade magazines with friends that had tattoos in them and things like that. Okay. For a lot of your listeners, this is going to sound like it's coming out of left field because my career path doesn't really make a lot of sense. No, but that's, that's, I think the pivots are good. I really appreciate the pivots. And mostly I appreciate the pivots because they're they're guided by desires or passions rather than desperation. And I feel like the pivots that I've made in my life, I'm not going to say that they're always based on desperation, but they're almost always based on need. And I think that, you know, learning carpentry because you want to build a house with a tree in the middle of it, or I'm not talking about the plastic bag factory, like 
you made you made the best out of the plastic bag factory, which is amazing. But uh, you're interested in tattoos. You have been. You have tattoos, and you start a streaming show about it. And that might not sound like a big deal now because there are eight million streaming shows on YouTube. But it was kind of a new thing then, right? This was in 2012. There were podcasts, but there weren't there weren't the people making millions of dollars with YouTube shows. YouTube was still just a content dump for everyday people to just put their videos up. It wasn't like this curated, produced shows that are out there now. I don't remember what year YouTube actually launched, but I remember in the very beginning, just talking with friends about like, yeah, you can go. Someone put up this video of this band playing live, just stuff like that. It was just clips from people's phones or camcorders of live musical performances. It was totally random and no production quality whatsoever. Yeah, there are many many terrible cell phone videos from the early days of YouTube of my old band. People ask me like, well, what did your band sound like? And my only reference point I have is like this horrible, shaky flip cell phone video. And be like, we didn't really sound like this. You had to be there. (laughs) Right. So the tattoo podcast thing came about because I knew the owner of the shop that I'd been getting tattooed at and he was trying to break into streaming He's like, you're in a band. You know how to be in front of people. Do you want to host a podcast? Oh, nice. And I was like, those, those things are very different. I, I'm like, being on stage, hiding behind a bass guitar is much different than hosting a podcast with my face on it in a microphone. And talking. And talking. A lot of talking. So much talking. To the point where you just irritate yourself, you talk so much. And then you question everything. Like, do I really sound like that? Like, wow, I do sound like that. You do. But when you listen back to yourself, you're like, I just sound like some jerk. So it was very shaky at first, but I got to really like it. I like talking to people. I've always liked just listening and talking to people. The back and forth is great. So I started doing the podcast. And in doing this podcast, I met some of the top tattooers working in the world. Like really big name artists. The guy that tattoos The Rock is one of the dudes that I got to know. Yeah, the guy that tattoos Sylvester Stallone. And I was like, wow, this is a really cool community of people. I was doing carpentry, but then I was hanging out with this like artist community of tattooers. And when Craig decided to leave, I was like, can I make a transition from this very stable income to trying to eke out a living in this tattoo world? Streaming wasn't a thing that made money. No. But I was like, I'm going to try it. Yeah. So I did. I pitched the idea to the guy I was doing the podcast with. Um, I was like, hey, look, I can help you do this stuff, but I need an income. I can come in and do digital media and I can do uh, online seminars so I could stream things out to people from events and I could make DVDs and I can host this interview thing. And I can do these interviews live at events. And he's like, all right, if you can get this guy to agree to make an instructional DVD, he's never agreed to do it with anybody else. If you can get him to agree to do that, you can have a job. And I said, give me three days. Who is this guy? Bob Tyrell. I've, I've heard that name. Bob Tyrell is like 30 years he's been tattooing, 25 years. He's a black and gray realism artist out of Detroit, Michigan. Um, I've driven out to his place to get tattooed. We've become friends over the years. He's a partier. Um, 
so I was it was really easy for me to get to know him at the time for sure. I was a partier as well. Okay. Meaning meaning I could stay up late and listen to rock and roll and drink lots of beer. Yeah, right on. So we were at an event. Uh, it was like a tattoo convention, and I spent a couple days just talking to him. And I was like, "Hey, I need a date from you. I want to record an instructional DVD." He's very quick to say yes to people, but then he doesn't follow through. Doesn't follow through. Yeah. So I was like, well, open up your calendar. Let's put it in your calendar right yes. now. <laughs> so he did. And he opened it up and he put it in his schedule. And I went back to the guy that I um, eventually would be working for. And I said, all right, I got him to agree to it. We're going to split it 50-50. And he's like, okay, you got the job. He's like, no one's ever been able to get him to do anything like that. That's great. So I became I became a digital media producer with no experience. Bob Tyrell. I. I feel like I know that name, but like talking about, yeah, I don't know the name of tattoo guys. So is there another reason why I would know his name? I'm not sure. You know, he's been like a guest judge on some of the tattoo shows. Yeah. I don't know how you would know him unless you're in the tattoo world. Which I am not. I have no tattoos and no plans to get any. Also a guitar player. He toured with Exodus. If you remember that. I band. do. Played guitar with them. He's just a, a very large personality in the tattoo world. but And a shredder. Yeah, it's extremely good at guitar. No tattoos on you, huh, Jim? No, no. I, I was going to get one once, but uh, I had actually Sean Kelly made up a crazy design for me. I took that uh, design to a place in Providence because at that point, tattoos were still illegal in Massachusetts. Up until 2001. There you go. So it must have been 1999, maybe. I don't remember what year it was. And the guy said that he wouldn't do it because he thought that lines were too fine. And as I aged, it would it would turn into a blob of grossness. You got lucky. Yeah. It's, it's common now that someone would tell you that. But in the late 90s, people would just be like, give me your money. And they would put it on you. And five years later, it would be a blurry mess. There was a girl that was living with me at the time and she was hardcore. She had tattoos all over. And I assume she just took me to a place that was good. I don't remember the place. It was in Providence. There were a bunch of tattoo stores around and we went to that one. And um, there's amazing tattooers all over the world. But, you know, if you were passionate about it, you'd probably already have one. Probably. Nowadays, you know, so many people have tattoos that people that are untattooed are kind of the those are the outlaws. Then that's great. Um, I think, I think too many people have tattoos. Take this however you will. But you know, back in the day, only people like from prison or in hardcore bands would have neck tattoos. And now it's like college girls. I don't understand. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Um, a friend of mine has brass knuckles tattooed on his, on his neck and he got it, you know, probably the early nineties. And now he's like, he's like, yeah, this used to be hard. Like he played in hate breed, you know, right. he was that guy. that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> like that guy. And now... Young people will come in and get that as their first tattoo. Yeah. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> and they're not hard. They're baristas, you, you know, or, or they work at the dispensary down the street. I mean, I don't want to be judgmental. People can get whatever they want. But you see like these, of course. these pretty boys coming in with like elaborate Japanese sleeves and all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff. It's like, dude, seriously, you? <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, you know, with enough money, you can get anything now. Yeah. Uh, it's the same type of people that would be driving the BMW in the 80s that are getting the bodysuit today. Exactly. You know, they go and they do some ayahuasca retreat or something and they, they, they contact with nature or their spirit animal or whatever. And then all of a sudden they've got stuff tattooed all over their bodies like they're some Maori warrior. 
Wow, that's all kinds of mixed stuff going on. There. It is uh, <laughs> <laughs> many cultures. I'm a I'm a multicultural guy. Yeah, I'm okay with parts of that kind of stuff. Like if you you know if you go on some sort of spiritual journey to you and yeah, you want to get tattooed based upon that. That's fine. Um, I don't ever do Maori tattoos because I'm not Maori. Yeah, and my clients aren't either. No, they aren't. So that yeah, so that's that would be bad. I also don't think all tattoos need to have meaning, which. A lot of people getting their first tattoos are like, I, I, this really is important to me. It means a lot. And then they want to put a thousand things into it and they don't need that. They can just be cool. I remember you used to have, you used to have a, or I, oh, you used to, I'm assuming that you still do. You had the, the spark plug on your arm. So the spark plug tattoo idea came from when I was working at that auto parts store yeah. that was terrible. But every day I had to restock spark plugs on the shelf and there was this really cool artwork on the spark plug boxes that someone had to make a Japanese artist. Cause they were NGK spark plugs. A Japanese artist made this commercial art and it was on millions of boxes. And most of the time people just open it up, take spark plug out, throw the box away. But I saw it every day and I was like, this is cool. Someone worked really hard on this. I really appreciate it. So I got it tattooed on me. Hell yeah. That's why, that's why I have that spark plug. And it's got my wife and children's initials in it, which happen to be GZA. So people think I'm down with the Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what that was at the time. Uh-huh. But yeah, still have it many, many years later. Obviously, it's a tattoo, but um, I haven't covered it. So Right. Oh, it's a, well, it's a good one. I remember an old roommate of mine told me about a friend of his. He was a tattoo artist and he used to practice on himself. So he had all kinds of meaningless, cool stuff on him. Like he like a golden bunch of grapes on his, on his deltoid. And, uh, like that just sounds cool, right? Like Yeah. Golden grapes. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's kind of cool to just have something that looks cool. And I, and I think that the, the story aspect of it comes from the television now that they're, it started with, uh, was it Miami Inc? Was this, was that the first one? LA Inc.? LA, LA or Miami or My, Miami Inc. And then it became LA Inc. Yeah. Cap on D and all of those folks. Yeah. Through my experience in the tattoo world, I've got to meet most of those people. Oh, really? Which is, which is crazy. That's yeah, cool. Because the tattoo world is surprisingly small, especially when you get into like the top 10%. Yeah. Which is, you know, the people I was talking to. Right. So I've got to meet most of those people. Okay. Which is pretty cool. Often the topic of discussion goes into music, and I don't know how you ever felt about Jane's addiction, but as you are probably aware, Dave Navarro is has a tattoo show now. Well, he he was a judge on Ink Master for years. I thought he was like the MC. I thought he was like the guy. And then, have you ever watched Ink Master before? I think it's terrible. I've seen all of them because I'm just curious about how it's portrayed. And I know the contestants often, the artists, yeah, the artists that are on the shows. Like I know a good percentage of those every season okay. because I've, I've met them at conventions and whatnot. And like I said, the tattoo world is relatively small. Yeah. So yeah, Dave Navarro with Jane's Addiction is a judge, which is really funny because he's covered in pretty mediocre tattoos. And he's, he's one of the people that's judging the tattoos that get done on those shows. His standpoint is that he represents the average person, the tattoo consumer, and that's his his position on the show. He lost a lot of credit with me with the tattoo show, but I still love Jane's Addiction. So do I. They're one of my favorite bands, and I and I um him being on that show, you'd think okay, maybe it's going to be kind of cool, but I do not think it's. I, I just it's very disappointing. I can tell where the producers were going with that one, but honestly, by the time that show came out, 
Shane's Addiction was irrelevant to younger people. Yeah, except for old guys. Like us. Yeah. Wrong demographic. Yeah. They should have got someone like Harry Styles. Does he have tattoos? Probably everybody does, right? I don't know much about him, but yeah, he probably has a bunch of really tiny, small, terrible ones. But if he's anything like Justin Bieber, which I, man, I sound really old right now. I'm not going to comment on Justin Bieber. He does not appeal to me, but he, I, you know, I'm, I'm told that he's actually quite talented. It's just every time I hear when these younger folks, pop musicians, whatever, are are doing their thing, I can tell when they're good or not. And I, I, I don't really feel it with him. I don't understand. You know, that's it's completely subjective. Your opinion is not going to be the same as a 12-year-old's opinion. No, but I, I mean, I'm not into Adele either, but I can tell that she's good. Sure. Point. Yes, absolutely. Got it. I'm not into, you know, I'm not, I don't celebrate Billie Eilish, but she's good. I don't, I couldn't pick her song out. I, I could, really I know her voice. I think, she, I actually think she's quite a really good singer. Um, but I've uh, seen some interviews. She seems cool. Yeah. Considering that she's like the superstar child, basically, she seems pretty level-headed. And I think it's, she may be a good example of, of uh, a family entertainment business that isn't exploitative. Um, well, I mean, we'll, we'll see in a few years if she comes out as com- completely traumatized and damaged. Yeah. Back to Jane's Addiction just for a moment. Um, Thank you. Thank you for that. I I like them so much that Gretchen and I, our wedding song is a Jane's Addiction song. Oh, nice. Which song? I Would For You. All right, nice. It's cool until like grandma hears the slave part in the middle of the song and kind of looks over. What's going on with you guys? Yeah. No, it's cool. Really. It's, it's a symbolic thing. We don't get weird about it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, um, tattoo shows. Uh, I like I I like watching tattoo shows, but I kind of wish they were all about ten minutes long and they focused more about showcasing the stuff rather than everybody's stories. Like, yeah, I know you you love your baby. Everybody loves their baby. Everybody, you know, your dad died. I, that sucks. It's nice that you want to pay tribute to him, but you, you know, come on, twenty minutes of talking about the dead dad and you know twenty seconds of looking at the cool tattoo. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but if you look at the demographic of popular television, you know, Housewives of Wherever and yeah. Jersey Shore, and, and those are the those shows are all of that drama stuff. They are. That's what people want people, the average person wants to see, which is terrible. But those shows aren't about tattooing to me. They're not there for that. You know, it's a cool subject, but it's, it's an aside. Those shows are about the drama. They're just about the interpersonal drama and... I don't like them. But it's just like, it's just like at your shop, right? There's so much drama. All the time. There's there's lots of drama. Um, I can do a back piece in 45 minutes with commercial breaks. You've gotten a lot of practice. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, No, real tattooing is not like that at all. I mean, sometimes you get a 20 minute monologue about someone's dead dad. Yeah. Which I I would expect, but does it need to be a TV show? But that that's whatever. People like it. People like it. I don't like it. That's okay. I don't watch it. I don't watch it. So I, I totally avoid any disappointment I might have with the format. <laughs> okay. So how do you go from being tattoo YouTube guy to tattoo artist? I can p- kind of pick up from where I was. I was doing this digital media producer job, making instructional DVDs with some of the top tier artists in the world. Um, also streaming instructional seminars, which younger or inexperienced tattoo artists would buy and watch live and a tattoo would be happening along with some instruction on how techniques and that kind of thing. I would travel 
to conventions, um, tattoo conventions. I went to Italy. I've been, you know, I've been to Ireland, all over the United States. And they would do these seminars there, and I would set up all the gear and point cameras at everything and do the computer end of it. So I was absorbing knowledge because I was curious. I was, yeah. wanted to learn about whatever that they were doing. The pattern continues. Like, I, yeah, I'm doing this. They're doing that. That looks cool. How do I figure out how to do that? Yeah, right. It made sense to me because originally I wanted to be an artist, but there was no money in it. And it seemed like a way for me to be an artist, be around artistic people in a community where people gave a shit about art and make a living at it. What is the downside? You know, I just thought it was like the coolest job ever. I didn't really think I was going to be able to do it because I'm, at this point I'm in my late 30s, almost 40, and usually apprentices start in their 20s, and starting in your 40s is really is hard. Bob Tyrell, the guy that I got to agree to make a DVD, started at 34. He was always telling me like, hey man, you could do this if you wanted to do this. I'm like, yeah, but I'm too old. He's like, I started at 34. I'm like, but I'm 37. Yeah, but you already knew how to, you have an art background. You already knew how to draw. I was afraid. I was cool in the industry. Like people knew me. Like I, I threw parties and people would come to them. Yeah. I didn't want to start from a point of being like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing and be bad at it. Right, right, right. Um, I didn't want these people that I respected and looked up to to be like, wow, he kind of, he kind of <laughs> Nice sucks. guy, but damn. <laughs> Man, this, he kind of sucks. Um. So there was an element of that, a couple years of that, of me talking to artists and having them be like, why, why are you on that side of the camera? Why, why don't you learn how to do this? I, we did it. You know all this stuff. Um, you know, I could talk to a tattoo artist and be in the same world with them. And I understood the things because of all the interviews I didn't doing. Bob Tyrell and another artist from Germany, Ralph Nonweiler, were doing a seminar uh, one July, seven years ago. And had been like hounding me to just learn it, learn it. And I'd had a couple drinks. They had had a couple drinks after their seminar was over. They're like, shake my hand right now. You're going to tell me you're going to be a tattoo apprentice. And I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. Terrifying because there's no money in tattoo apprenticing. It's a lot of work. You don't get paid to do it. Yeah. Thankfully, I was already working in the tattoo world. So I had, I had a way to be in the studio and learning at the same time. I found a mentor and I did the homework and learned how to do it. I tattooed friends for free and made terrible tattoos on them. I didn't show anyone, uh, you know, spent two years learning how to physically tattoo people. And then uh, I knew how. So I became a tattooer. The shop that I had been working with let me start tattooing full time in the shop. It's a very well-known shop, globally well-known shop. All right. Uh, we, had, we had guest artists from everywhere, and it was really hard to get in there. There was like an interview process and like a year-long guest artist process to get in there. Thankfully, because of all the work I had been doing, I just got to slide in and have a booth, which is extremely rare. Right. So at 40 years old, I become a tattoo apprentice. I don't have to do the toilet washing stuff because I'm older. You know, like there's a lot of apprentice hazing that happens. Sure, I'm, I'm sure. Got to pay your dues, man. I got to skip a lot of that um, because that stuff is kind of geared towards making a young person understand that life is work and that kind of stuff. But I'd already known that. <laughs> I know all about work. Yeah, I was like, oh, I'm good. Check. Um, my mentor was younger than I was, which is in interesting. His name is Joe King. He tattoos in Kentucky. He's a great dude. 
And I also had the benefit of being able to send drawings to some like Guy Aitchison, who is a really well-known tattoo artist, um, Bob Tyrell, and show my work to all of these really well-known tattooers, and they would give me critiques. So I got to learn pretty quickly and had I had better resources than most apprentices do. It sounds like you've had you had you had access to some pretty high-level dudes. I did, and yes, more so than anybody else. I'm very fortunate. And I'm very thankful for what I was exposed to. If I had to start in a street shop like everybody else did, I probably would have never made it. It would have been too hard. You know, I wouldn't have learned fast enough. I wouldn't have had enough clients. Yeah. I wouldn't have enough exposure to actually make a living at it. Being a contractor gave me the skills so that when the tattoo shop expanded, I built the new tattoo shop as an apprentice. Okay. So I built the booths. So I learned how to do like tattoo shop ground up. Yeah, I, I feel like I saw something about when I wasn't sure if it was moving or if it was a new shop. I feel like I saw that on social media. About three years ago, a little bit a little bit longer, the shop that I had been working for had closed and a small portion of the artists that worked there, we had 13 artists that worked there. We decided that we were going to start our own shop because the way that one that closed was run was terrible. It ended really badly. We lost a bunch of money, each of us personally, but we all wanted to stay in the area even though I was the only one that was local. We had artists from California, Staten Island, New York, Connecticut, like China. So yes, three years ago, that was the last carpentry project I did. I built the studio that I work in now, Oxbow Tattoo in East Hampton. Yeah, I'm done building things though. I'm, I'm over it. Until something happens at the house. Yeah, no, uh, Gretchen and I want to build a barn and I think I'm going to hire someone to do it because I don't want to do it anymore. You have room for a barn? Plenty of room. That's pretty great. That's the glory of Western Mass. Yeah, there's we're up on top of a mountain, which is pretty beautiful, and there's wildlife, and I love it. Mm -hmm. I'm almost an hour from work, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, I don't mind the drive. I will be listening to Feel Free to Deviate on my way to uh, the shop today. As you should. I'm not working today, though. I'm getting tattooed today because the shop You're is, getting a tattoo. Yeah, the shop is closed, but I'm getting a tattoo today. Are you going to another shop in the area or are you going someplace else? Uh, I'm getting tattooed at my shop. Um, ah. One of the artists that I work with is Eric Talbot. Eric Talbot is one of the original artists from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic book. If you remember those. Yeah, that's a Western Mass staple. Eric... Um, had been a comic book illustrator for 30 plus years. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed him on my podcast show um, because I want to talk about his art background. Right. And he was very curious about the tattoo thing. So after the podcast, I showed him a tattoo machine. I kind of walked him around the shop and it really piqued his interest. About six months to a year later, he approached the shop about becoming a tattoo apprentice. How old is he? He's probably 10 years older than I am, eight years older. Um, Makes sense. And we're, we're all like, wow, really? <laughs> why, did, why would you want to do this? You're, you're successful. Yeah, I know. You must have piles of money. <laughs> I don't know if he does or he doesn't. Um, I'm sure he does well. He wasn't, he's not Kevin Eastman, so he didn't, you know, he didn't get the millions and millions because he was the guy that was, you know, inking comic books, actually, you know, drawing and doing the actual work as opposed to... <laughs> conceptual work no slight to kevin i'm sure you know he did plenty of work anyway eric talbot starts an apprenticeship after chatting with me and getting into the same shop that collapsed he came with us to the new shop and is now a full-time tattooer i think he's in his second year tattooing mm -hmm. he's an artist that i used to 
copy when I was in junior high school. Nice. That's so crazy. Yeah, I would look at his artwork and I would, you know, make versions of of his artwork in my own hand. And so when the opportunity came up to I wanted to do a full torso piece. Yeah. And he I originally started working with another artist. We never came to an agreement on how it was going to work. When that fell through, I asked Eric to do it. So Eric Talbot is tattooing a giant double-headed cobra on my torso. That's super cool, man. It's funny because it's, um, I think 14-year-old Ben would love the fact that he's getting a double-headed cobra. It reminds me of uh, another guy that I want to have on the show is uh, a friend from high school who's a drummer. He moved out to LA and for a long time he was, he was doing some session work and, uh, you know, in various hardcore bands and over the course of his career, he's ended up meeting like all the dudes we used to go to see at all ages shows when we were, when we were kids, like we would drive from Connecticut, we would drive up to, uh, wherever Danbury or to Northampton to see whatever all ages show was happening. And he's, even been in bands with some of these guys it's it's just it's just super cool right <laughs> um my friend ali uh owns a pilates studio in hollywood and one of her clients is greg hetson from the circle jerks dude yeah see it's it's just crazy like you're like yeah i used to like have your records i used to like i went i saw you when i was like 13 or whatever <laughs> yeah it's amazing meeting your meeting your idols not all of my experiences with meeting people like that have been great. Yeah. Um, so sometimes you're like, oh man, I wish I never met you. You're kind of an <laughs> asshole. The idea of you is so much better than the real thing. <laughs> yeah. Why can't you live up to the ideal in, that I have in my mind that I've formed by never meeting you? Yeah. Did you uh, read Keith Richards' autobiography? So I, I started reading it. I got a few chapters in and then I started listening to it with Johnny Depp. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say, don't read it, it, listen to it. <laughs> Right. And it was way, way better to listen to Johnny Depp kind of do his weird Keith Richards piratey voice thing through it, which is very strange. But I, I like listening to it better than I like reading it, for sure. Him talking about meeting Chuck Berry is kind of like that. It's just like, Chuck Berry's awesome, but he's kind of a dick. <laughs> but, you know, you can I can forgive Chuck Berry for being, you know, he had to deal with a lot. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> yeah, like he's like the most talented guy in the world and he had to deal with all this systemic pressure and, and, and subjugation. It's awful. Being a person of color in the time that he came up, I'm surprised that he did as well as he did. Well, he did as well as he did because he was like the greatest. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Right. He had to be this extreme ideal to make it to where he did. And so many people just straight up ripped him off. Couldn't do anything about it. But at least we appreciate it. At the time, I don't think a lot of people did. No, I, I, well, well, Keith did. <laughs> right. It had served Keith very well, as we all know. Yeah, still going. He does all right. Charlie Watts, on the other hand, didn't make it. But he had a good run, man. My friend Donnie worked for Charlie for years as his drum tech. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. So now he's working with the new guy, I think. But yeah, he was, he, that's what he did. He toured with the Rolling Stones and he was Charlie Watts' drum tech. And he's just a dude from, you know, here, Western Mass. How did he get that gig? He, Started off much smaller. He drum teched for a bunch of other bands. He's done like Neil Young and Faith No More. Um, there's some smaller bands that I, I'm not remembering, but he just kind of worked his way through the industry to get to the to the Stones eventually. I think the Neil Young probably is the thing that sprung him 
not everybody uh, can be Charlie Watts, but you know, it's pretty cool to get uh, Charlie Watts adjacent. To a lesser degree, I'm going to bring up uh, I'm going to bring up something from your past, our past. I don't know if you recall this, but around 2001, during the summer, you guys, the strippers, your band from back in the Northampton days, was supposed to go on a tour. And I don't know if you recall this, but I don't drink. And you asked me if I would drive your bus on the tour. I did? You did. Oh, man, that and was... I was just like, yes, I will drive. I will do that. That would be the greatest summer ever. I was prepared to leave school before graduation. Not, not you know, I, I had already, I had graduated, but I wasn't going to go to graduation. And then wow. like a week before you're like, we got to cancel the tour. <laughs> yeah, I was super bummed when that happened. Like I was very excited. Like the band was doing fairly well locally. Yeah. Um, the vibe was good. It was. I was unemployed at that point. Oh. I, I'd gotten I'd gotten laid off. Like perfect timing. I was collecting unemployment. So uh -huh. I still had a check. And then I had a school bus. I had the time and I had the resources. I still have a lot of that tour planning stuff in the basement here. Uh -huh. I look at it sadly every once in a while. <sighs> Dude. So anyway, to the people out there, we had a we had a, a personnel problem, and uh, yeah, we had to cancel it all. I think asking you to drive was a really good idea. I can't believe I didn't remember that. Like yeah. the only guy that you know that can stay up all night long and doesn't drink at all. <laughs> right, and you know, at the time we were we were pretty good at drinking. You know, yeah. the rest of us we we're well practiced for sure, and it, and it was part of our shtick. It's not that you guys were the most unique band in the world, but the live show was like the, it was such a fun live show and you guys were, you know, you had worked your way up from being a shitty bar band to being a really, 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 really awesome bar band. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that band was all about just fun and like very derivative. You know, we weren't breaking any new ground. Um, most of the reason for the success of that band is Craig Hall though. Like watch watching that guy on stage as a front man, like you can't not not do well. He's a force of nature. He's a he's a, a great, great front man. The best front man I've ever been in a band with, for sure. And I've been in another another band with him since then. We were in a band called Unicorn together for a few years. That band was Craig and I and the drummer from the unband. Eugene Ferrari. How's that for a name? It's huh? it's pretty good. It's very rock and roll. <laughs> His son's name is Santino Ferrari. Pretty awesome. Do you, do you do you do you resist the urge to say Santino? He goes by Sonny. Very Corleone. Yeah, very mobstery. But they're not. They're like the sweetest, kindest family in the world. There's no there's no mafia there. Eugene's dad was literally a rocket scientist. That's amazing. Yeah, I I, I remember that guy being around, but I I never I didn't really know him. I, I mean, maybe I talked to him once or twice, but we it's not like I wasn't chummy with him or anything. Yeah, I mean, at that time the unband was probably like. They were opening for Motorhead and Whitesnake and Dio and stuff like that. They were, yeah, they were doing really well. And then they, they lit that thing on fire and just crashed and burned. I know we've touched upon my music playing, but uh, throughout all of this, I've been playing in bands the whole time. That's actually one of the reasons why, that's one of the reasons, because maintaining the extracurriculars is, is, is I think, maybe even harder than maintaining a career because of time and responsibilities. Yeah, playing in bands and working full time when I was younger wasn't hard to do. You know, it was easy for me to go to work tired and what whatnot and stay up late. But in reflection, it was not good for my interpersonal relationships. I wasn't around a lot. Yeah, and it's definitely a big regret. Um, I've really enjoyed what I've got to do, 
but it came with a price for sure. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't very fair a lot of the times. Um, I had kids young. Yep. My wife stayed home with the kids. Yeah. And I would go out and play shows and she would stay home. Yeah. And at the, at the time she was like, no, it's fine. It's cool. Um, but I know that it was really easy for me to accept that answer. Like, oh, it's fine. All right, cool. Bye. <laughs> yeah. And I would just do that. And without taking another thought about it. Yeah. But, it, you know, in, in retrospect, she was just hoping that I would wake up to the fact that it wasn't fine. You know, right. Like, what are you doing, asshole? Come take care of your kids. Right. So it's not all positive. Um, I had a great experience, but it's been a very it, learning to balance interpersonal stuff with like the desire to chase my own dreams has definitely been a challenge in my life. Right. But that's how it goes, right? I mean, back when you were having kids, none of us had kids. Nobody did. You were like the young couple with kids. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm really glad that it happened that way. Yeah. and But there are benefits to both sides of the thing. You know, like you said, you could realize maybe you're more in tune with the feelings of your significant other or your kids or whatever, people around you. But then the other side of the coin is that you're old and you're having kids and your beard turns like this. It's a lovely white beard that you have. It is, it is white. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know it any other way. I just know that my sister had her son when she was 23, and it had its own challenges. But it, was, it, was hard, it was hard for us because we never had a lot of money. Yeah. You know? So there was always like... That's the big one, right? Yeah. And you, know, you feel like you don't know what the hell you're doing. Yep. But I don't think any parents really know what they're doing no. until they're going through it. Well, I mean, some think they do. Yeah, but they're wrong. If you haven't gone, if you, you know, if you haven't gone through it, you have no idea. And people can only explain it to you so many times. And uh, you just have to kind of realize it for yourself. Yeah. You know. Also, they don't know your kid. Right. All the kids are different. Some of them are assholes. And some are assholes sometimes and not all the time. Right. Everybody is. Not me. I'm always a peach. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um. I feel fortunate that I did it the way I did because I don't know if I would have the energy for small children now. It could be hard. And it also allows me to be in a place where I'm financially stable and I can chase hobbies that I want to do and not have to worry about like buying diapers or groceries. Yeah, for sure. Diapers suck. Yeah. So I'm kind of happy that it was hard as a young person, but I had the energy level to do it. And I had an amazing partner. Like she did a lot of the heavy lifting. Yeah, she's like a Buddha, man. I, I mean, she, yeah, she's always seemed just like a cool as a cucumber. There's no way that I would be where I am today without her helping me along the way. I've never seen her freak out. I've never seen her get, I mean, I, I, I haven't seen her for eons and, you know. Sure. But my limited interactions interactions with her have always been super, like, just even keeled. Like, she's like a rock. Absolutely. I would say most people that meet her would say the same thing. She's very, very calm and even. A little too quiet at times. Doesn't necessarily express everything, which is, you know, makes it easier for someone like me who's oblivious to what's going on to not pay attention. If, there's a, if there was an issue about me, like, being out all night long, yeah. um, she would be quiet about it. And uh, me, wouldn't, I wouldn't even realize because, you know. Because you didn't want to. Right. That's my fault, not her fault. But like I said, I wouldn't be where I am today without her. So my success is not, was not... Uh, not one alone. We've been together since 1994. Dude, it's so crazy. It's so long. Right. And she hasn't thrown me out yet, <laughs> which, is, which is cool. Congratulations. Because I, I like the house. <laughs> I mean, I don't give her any reason to now, but 
I'm sure, you know, back in the old days, coming home smelling like beer in uh, a bar room, there were times when she probably wasn't too stoked about that. I can imagine that there were there were less than optimal nights. Yeah. I mean, there was a long time when I was an apprentice that I would make videos all day and then I would entertain guest artists all night long and then I would get home at two or three in the morning. She got up for work at 5.30 and would be gone. So... I would be sleeping, she would get up, go to work, she would come home, go to sleep, I would come home after that and go to sleep. So we never, there was a, a good chunk of time when we didn't see each other. Yeah, it's, that's tough, man. It was bad. Don't do that to your partner. Uh, I don't foresee it happening, but I suppose if, if they were, <laughs> when the money starts running out, I guess I, I may be forced to take a job that requires me to be away at weird hours, but I'm, I'm trying to avoid that. I'm trying to be picky. Yeah, really look at it and balance it because that was one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made in my life. Yeah. Was when I was an apprentice, I was very focused on chasing this, this dream of being a tattoo artist. And... I closed off everything else. I was just blind, you know, like blinders on. And I was not paying attention to what was happening outside of that little tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. And that almost brought everything down. So right. pay attention to your partner, man. That's like, not just, not, not you, everybody. Like, pay attention. Yeah. Because it's really easy to... Especially if you're with someone for a long time and they've supported you for a long time, and yep. they're always there, you take them for granted. And that's not fair. Agreed. I didn't want to make this a you know a marriage counseling episode, but you know It's part of success, right? Well, like I said, I wouldn't be where I am today without her. So And if you can make it work since nineteen ninety four, then I suppose something is uh something's going right. Yeah, I mean like I, I didn't build this house alone. She was here helping me. Yeah. You know, she she was a part of every step of all of these stories I've told you. Yeah. She has been the consistent factor all the way through it. Yeah. It's important to note. It's important to note. Hi, Gretchen. <laughs> so I still play music. I just do it a little bit more responsibly. Right. Um, after my apprenticeship, I changed my schedule to nine to five which is unheard of in the tattoo world. Most people work like noon to seven. Oh, okay. I work Monday through Friday, nine to five. Do you get a lot of people in there at nine? All of my clients used to come in at 930, oh. for sure. Why? Who were they? People that didn't want to, like they would take a day off to get tattooed and then not want to wait three hours. Yeah, yeah, sure. Why? That makes sense. Yeah, they had the day off. Right. To begin, to begin with. There's a, there's a good segment of the population that just wants to get stuff done early. Yeah. You know? And they come to find me. But I work Monday through Friday. I, I'm home. I get out of work by five o'clock every day. The person I was working for at the time was like, that's going to be a really hard way for you to be successful in tattooing because most beginning tattooers have to work nights and whatever. And I'm like, no, I'm going to make this work. And he's like, okay, you're going to work Monday through Friday, nine to five tattooing skulls, and you want to be successful? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I specialize in skulls. <laughs> I kind of do. Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, I've made it work. It, you know, it took a few years, but I've made it work. The reason I did that schedule is so that I wasn't doing the whole ships in the night thing yeah. anymore. Right. So I could be home. And, uh, you know, I made a, a, a conscious attempt to go to bed at the same time as my partner did. And, yeah, and make sure that we see each other in the morning before we leave for work and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. That has definitely been helpful. You know, just yeah. that little bit of contact and routine yeah. has been great. And it makes the rest of my life easier. 
now, as far as what I do, I'm a full-time tattooer with some respect in the industry. I am booking appointments between two and three months out. Oh, wow. From today. So it's, re- it's kind of hard to get tattooed by me if you want to get tattooed immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a large clientele that come back. I have people that I started tattooing when they were 18 and are coming back now at 23 that are still getting tattooed. Yeah, there's a lot of loyalty, isn't there? There really is. And uh, I appreciate it. Sure. You know, I try to encourage people to go to as many artists as possible, though, because it's cool to meet more different people and have different different art. You know, I love when they come back to me. I would never tell them not to. But also the loyalty thing does. It's not a have to. No artist is ever going to be offended if you go to another artist. And if they are, they're the wrong artist. So I work at Oxbow Tattoo, which is a comp- uh, like a shop that we built together. Uh, I'm busier. I'm as busy as I want to be, which is great. Um, I play in a band called Problem with Dragons, which is like a doom metal band. Nice. Something I joined. Um, the band had been around for 10 or 12 years. Their bass player had passed away. It was a friend, a really good friend of mine. And the band had, you know, ceased to exist. Uh, and about a year later, Rob, um, founding member of the band, asked me if I wanted to step in and play bass. I hadn't played music in a little while um, since Craig had moved to California and whatnot. And I said, yeah. So it's not like the old stuff. It's not big, dumb party rock. It's a little slower and dirgier. Before COVID, we toured to California. We did like 10,000 miles in 24 days in a van. 21 shows in 24 days. We drove from the East Coast of the United States to the West Coast to the northern border and all the way down. I did the thing. I slept on my amp in the van and it's a cool band. And once COVID kind of subsides, I hope to get back to doing touring. Thankfully, my job is flexible enough that I can do that kind of thing. It sounds like it if you have uh, that many clients lined up. Yeah, being able to take a month off of work is kind of cool. And I can tattoo anywhere with a small bag. Oh, right. You can bring your stuff with you or even go to a shop. You could probably go to another shop even. Well, I would never tattoo outside of a shop. It's kind of ethically outside of where I like oh, to. Okay, right on. I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know the rules, man. <laughs> uh, you know, there's no hard and fast rules. You know, Tattooing has been an outlaw thing for a really long time. And there are plenty of people that tattoo in hotel rooms and, and things like that. But to keep my reputation intact, I would just do a guest spot at another tattoo shop. And it's easier because they have the supplies and it's clean. And, you know, they have support staff and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I can take my little bag and I can go anywhere I want in the world. I could go to Rotterdam and... You should. Chances are I could work for a couple of days and pay for my trip. Please just open down the street. I have no idea if they're good or not, but... Well, see, that doesn't... If I'm doing a guest spot, it really doesn't matter. Like, like as long as they're clean... It, it, it looks like a nice place, but I, I honestly have no idea if it's good or not. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's like a super famous guy in Amsterdam who does a lot of uh, rock stars and stuff. But I, I... Yeah, I don't know. There's a few. There's a tattoo museum over there, too. Oh, okay. When you were on tour, did you play with any uh, any bands that you were into? When you go on tour, you're always the out-of-town band. Yeah. So you're playing with the locals. Ah, you know, because, okay. Right on. Because you need their draw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we weren't doing big tours. We're okay. Not playing, yeah, we're not playing with whoever, Rancid or right. Dropkick okay. Murphys or, what. you know, small rooms, clubs, club shows. We're not full-time musicians. Right. Like, we, I can't dedicate my entire life to, to that because I would be broke. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I understand. Uh, we did get to open for Pentagram. Okay. 
which is like classic 70s yeah. Black Sabbath-y doom. What are you listening to? <laughs> Musically? Yeah. I listen to a lot of the Bronx. They're called the Bronx, but actually they're from San Diego. I don't know. I listen to a lot of podcasts, so I don't listen to as much music. I listen to music all day long at work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just on. Yeah, it's nothing specific. Um, you know, like Jane's Addiction was yesterday. We'll, you know, we do album days and things like that. But as far as what I put on at home, it's the Bronx, often. The last show I saw was the OCs. Oh, yeah? How was that? Oh, it was so good. <laughs> chaotic uh it, it was it was pretty chaotic but we were elevated i don't i don't get down into it as much anymore because uh i don't like to touch people <laughs> i understand that i just so i was up on the up on the balcony looking at the melee but uh yeah i mean it was good it was it was so good and you know the guy's got like a million pedals and he's just yeah he's a mad scientist and i just love the fact that he can have something that sounds so mellow and beautiful and then so chaotic and insane and uh oh yeah absolutely he put out like four records during covid it's crazy <laughs> the guy i play with in problem with dragons he records everything um so he did two records during this shutdown. i was like what yeah he's like i got time we're not playing shows i made two records it's like holy all right cool the last time i was in a pit was uh i saw the jesus lizard in boston dude <laughs> and, and this is only a few years ago and I left there, I was wearing a leather jacket, but I was completely saturated. Yeah. Like soaked all the way through. And I don't think it was all my perspiration. Probably not. <laughs> and it was, I felt really gross after that. I'm like, I'm like, I don't know how I handled this as a younger person. You just don't care. You think it's cool. <laughs> yeah. I like, immediately had to go shower. For sure. It was a great experience. If you ever see the Jesus lizard, go to the front. I don't know how I've never seen them. I just, I mean, I feel like during the nineties, I saw like everybody, but I didn't see them. I remember reading about them, like their shows a lot. And what's his name? Da Yao. David Yao. And uh, like, yeah, he's a pretty Im imposing figure. He's very intense. Very, very intense. And I think he's got, he's got some trauma that he's dealing with that he just lets out at shows. Indeed. But yeah, I never, I don't know how I never ended up seeing them. But that, you know, that happens. I have, I have uh, holes in my, my, my nineties experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't get to see, I never saw Nirvana. Kurt Cobain threw my shoe backstage because I, I was, you know, <laughs> I was down in the pit and mm -hmm. some jackass ripped my shoe off and threw it on stage. And I was really pissed. They were expensive Nike cross trainers. Um, <laughs> and, um, and yeah, Kurt picked it up and threw it backstage. So after the show, I waited around till everybody was gone. And I asked the guy that was, you know, picking stuff up on the stage. Uh, can you check and see if my shoe is back there? He's like, no. <laughs> oh, no. So you never got your shoe no, back? No, it was like, it was like November in, in Springfield or something. Um, and yeah, it was cold. And I had <laughs> one shoe, one shoe and an expensive shoe at that. <laughs> I, I, I never got to see them. I got, I didn't get to see Jane's Addiction until later. To like the Ninja tour, which was like Jane's Addiction and Nine Inch Nails. Ooh, was which was cool. Who I went with? I went with Craig Hall actually. Who was Eric Avery playing with them still? Yes, oh. Oh, he had come. He had come. He had come back. Nice. So it was the original lineup. Dude, Eric A is the. Sh he's so good. He's he's my yeah. Absolutely. When that record, when the deconstruction record came out, like I I kind of realized that he was probably the thing that i liked the most about the band me too i mean when i was when learning how to play bass i learned 
the entire Nothing Shocking album because the bass lines across that record are just perfect. But also just so melodic and so I feel like a lot of bass players are like not failed guitarists, but guitarists who aren't they didn't need a guitar player, so they started playing bass. But he's like a true bass player who has the melodic and lead capabilities of a lead guitar play, of a, a rhythm guitar player. Yeah, I would agree. He's definitely one of my top three bass players. Amazing. Yeah. Um, Do you play any music? No, no. Well, no. I I the, I made the music for this podcast. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> it's all right. And uh, <laughs> uh, no, I don't. I don't. Um, I I haven't. No. I should. I have cuz I have a little bit of time. Though actually my my time does seem to be spoken for. I I don't know I don't know where my free time is. There's got to be, you know, somewhere around 40 hours a week that uh you have. Yeah. Well, th- this takes up quite a lot of time and um then applying for jobs or looking for jobs, home stuff, child rearing, child rearing. Marlene is particularly busy right now. So there's, there's more like we have to go to the, what, one of my kids has dyslexia and we have to go to the appointments for that, like for therapy. How old are your children? 10 and eight. Wow. Yeah. It goes fast. Yeah, I know. Mine are 25 and 22. Well, that's, I was going to ask you what, what's it like to hang out with a 25 year old kid? They're cool people. Like I, I like them. We have a lot in common. That's cool. During COVID, my shop was closed for four months Uh and my older daughter had already moved out, but my younger daughter was away at college. The college campus closed down. So she was home with me. Yeah. Just, just her and I for four months. Dude, that's awesome. It was great. And you know, she was 20, 21, 21 at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Most parents don't get to hang out with their child at that age. No, definitely not. Their kid's 21 and they're out. They're going to hang out with their friends, but there was nowhere to go. So I got to hang out with her and we had an amazing time. Like we learned how to do things together. We learned how to make challah bread, which takes two days, by the way. I didn't know that. It was not worth it. Stuff's dry. Just buy it. Find yourself a nice Jewish deli somewhere. (laughs) Um, We spent one day, like three hours just sitting in a field picking blueberries. Sounds like a great way to spend the afternoon. Yeah, it was great. Um, Gretchen would come home from work and feel like she didn't belong here because Alexa and I started speaking in like similar terms. And she like, <laughs> you guys were a club. <laughs> yeah, it was got really weird. Yeah, like we were listening to the same music all day long, and like we were using the same jokes and uh-huh. became like a, a singular person for a while. That was. One of the biggest positives to come out of a pandemic for me, for sure. It sounds like a pretty big one. If there has to be one. Does she introduce you to music and other cultural things? Uh, not really. She listens to a lot of older stuff. Like she likes the Grateful Dead. Ah, okay. Things I've already experienced. Yeah. I have a reputation of being a horrible, judgmental music snob, which is not unearned. I definitely am that person. So that my kids won't necessarily introduce me to anything because they don't want me to eviscerate it. And, and because I do, I'm a jerk like that sometimes. So yeah, my kids don't tell me a lot about that kind of thing. Okay. Um, my oldest daughter was listening to Justin Timberlake a bunch when he was big. Okay. And that turned me on to his stuff. I was like, oh, this is really good. I'm not interested in Justin Timberlake, but I know he's good. Like we were talking about that before. Yeah, I got to hear some like deeper cuts, like the not the radio stuff. And it's really well put together. But I've also heard him talk about music and he knows what he's talking about. Like 
from my opinion, he knows what he's talking about. He has good taste. I, I think he does. And he's super charismatic. Like, I think his humor is hilarious as well. Like, he's, he's got it going on. I would date that dude, I think. No, he's a triple threat, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a younger me would have been like, no way. That guy was in a boy band. Exactly. Nope. He's a talented young man. Talented middle-aged man. <laughs> he's not even point, young. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like I said, my kids are kind of afraid to turn me on to stuff because I'm ruthless when it comes to music. If it's I did my best, like I make mixes and stuff, like trying to handpick music that I think that I, I like, but will also appeal to kids, you know, something that's more dancey or fun or goofy or whatever. We kind of listened to this one kid's record by They Might Be Giants. It's the, the lyrics. I was going to recommend that. It's really good. Besides that, I never really listened to any, I never introduced them to any kid music, like music specifically marketed to children, but it ekes into their lives through school or through daycare or through whatever. And they, they listen to some stuff that it's hard for me let me just put it this way. I don't eviscerate it. I do make fun of it a little bit. I occasionally, I might call it soulless, but I also make sure that I put it, I offer, I, I put it on. I don't forbid them to listen to it in my presence. I want them to. Of course. I've never done that either. I just want them. I want them to be into whatever they're into, but. My children as preteens um, for like a brief nine month period got into new country. That's like my worst nightmare. It was mine as well. And I th- I think it was, be- you know, if your dad is a rock and roll guy, listens to really like, you know, what's commonly considered as pretty cool music. Yeah. How do you rebel against that with music? You listen to the absolute worst. You listen to new country because you, he has no interest in that. That, that is the antithesis of what your dad is trying to introduce you to. So that's, they got over that. Thankfully. My point is I let them listen to it. Yeah. It's like, all right, if this is what you want to spend your, if this is how you want to spend your time, go ahead. It's, it's your life, girl. I'm sure I was snarky about it, but I never was like, no, if, if, if you forbid children from doing things, they will do those things twice as hard. Yeah. My mom told me when I was younger, dye your hair, get an earring. This is before piercing was, you know, like buck, buckshot to the face kind of stuff. Never get a tattoo. That didn't work, did it? You know, I turned 18 and then two days later I had a tattoo. Right. Now she's cool with it. Because it's on TV. Because of Dave Navarro. <laughs> she, she told me not to. And that definitely was probably some sort of uh, subconscious motivator. You know, don't tell me not to. Uh, so if I forbid my children from listening to New Country, they might be uh, all about it now. Still. Just to be clear, like, it's, it's, not, it's not country. It's, there's a specific brand of... of contemporary pop music that is marketed as country that is very hard to listen to for me yeah oh yes Um, country music as a genre i like yeah more traditional country music hank williams uh johnny cash waylon jennings willie nelson you know those types anything that's been written by a pop producer i'm not with yeah take it off the table although you know, here's an interesting, I don't know if you listen to, you listen to podcasts. If you uh, have extra time or extra space in your podcast rotation, there's a podcast called Cocaine and Rhinestones. I've never heard it. I heard about it. What is it about? It is the son of David Allen Coe. Oh no. Talking about stories that he heard while growing up from his dad and all of his dad's friends. Whoa. It is amazing. He does deep dives into like the recording industry, into the entire country business about these legendary characters like Ernest Tubb. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's 
Highly recommended. I'm not a country guy. I mean, I've heard the names of half the people and the things. I knew a couple of them. Even if you don't know who the actual artist is, it's good. It's really good. Especially if you're into any sort of music biography stuff. It's awesome. I love things like that. I think that you'd really dig this. I kind of miss podcasting. Um, I stopped doing it in 2018 when the shop that I was working at closed. Yeah. I think I kind of want to get back into it. I don't know if I would do the video thing. I kind of prefer to be a voice as opposed to a face. Yeah, well, I think the video thing adds a whole nother level of preparation and production and ways to screw it up. And also it takes so much longer. Well, yeah, I had lighting and backgrounds had to make sense. Like I couldn't just hang up a wool blanket or be, you know, in front of a door, like a, a closet. When I first started brainstorming this, I thought I would do a YouTube thing. And I quickly decided that podcast was the way to go because I would need to buy lights. I would need to buy, I have a, I have a fancy camera, so that's, that's already taken care of. But, you know, then I'd have to like attach all the stuff to the camera. It's a, a lot of setup and breakdown before every episode. With this, I just have this, this crazy Zoom recorder. I plug an XLR into it and I'm pretty much ready to go. If there are two people, I plug two XLRs into it. So you do it live in person? You have people at your house? Sometimes, sometimes. Cool. Not as often as I'd like. I would love to fly over and do it, but this made more sense. Well, if you are in the neighborhood, we'll do a, a second round. Hopefully I'm still successful by that point. Or not. We can do it. We can do a crash and burn story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can cover all of the mistakes I've ever made because there's a lot of them. I wish I could say the same. Everything I've done is gold. Oh, well, I'm glad to see you're continuing with that tradition, with the podcast. I, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to get people to listen to a podcast. Yeah, um, it took me years to get viewership. Yeah? Um, yeah, just putting, putting it out and putting it out and putting uh-huh. it out. Because it was a video thing, I made it available to cable access television stations. Like I would pay to, so that they could have free downloads. And we ended up sending it to like 12 states or something like that and people were watching it in the middle of the night on their cable access which was really funny old like tom green show style yeah do you know anyone that that does a podcast that is bigger than yours personally yeah um probably but i can't think of anybody because i i I just can't think of anybody that's what you got to do leapfrog that stuff be a guest on someone else's I've looked at all the videos online. I've looked, I've read all the articles online saying, this is what you got to do. And, you know, I do a lot of those things, not everything, but yeah, I think that real world stimulus is the only thing that actually makes it start to happen. Like, I feel like word of mouth is by far the best way to get it out. I remembered when I, when I did mine, it was really cool to go somewhere and have someone recognize me. I was like, whoa, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Like I went to Italy and someone's like, Hey, you're the guy, (laughs) but it's, you know, it's tattoo stuff. So it's very specific. I am. I'm the guy. I don't have a lot of followers either. You know, I'm like sub 3000. Like, yeah, no, don't even, don't even talk to me. <laughs> 3000. <laughs> yeah. I'd be psyched for 3000 followers. Yeah, it's taken me a long time to get there. Yeah. I, I, week to week, I think I gain and lose about the same amount. Yeah. I think that that's, that's a normal thing because there's, um, there's like an algorithm. People find things that they're interested in that relates to whatever they are. And then they start liking, interacting with, and then dumping. It's part of the, that's the way the algorithm works. My friend Allie, who I mentioned earlier, um, who has the Pilates studio with the Circle Jerks guy. Anyway, her husband, that's what his job is. Yeah. He does that for a living, for corporations. Yeah. That is, he tells them how to do all that stuff. Um, When we were on tour, I went to visit those guys and he was on his phone constantly. And I'm like, Charlie, what are you doing? Dude. He's like, well, I... 
I, I'm liking all the people that followed me today. And then I'm going to go put a, a cupcake and a heart emoji on all of their comments. Yeah. And then after that, I'm going to go unfollow all the people that I followed yesterday. I'm like, what? Sounds like a gratifying job. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, he does really well. I think that they get paid a lot of money because nobody wants to do that. And it's such a strange job too. Like you can just tell people you do anything as long as they're gaining followers and what they think they're, you know, there's no way to really figure out if it's working for you other than the number of people. Like I, he does really well. I don't, he does really well. I, I don't give a shit enough to actually <laughs> put the work in to do that. I yeah. think, you know, if I wasn't as busy as I am, I guess I would focus more on that kind of thing. Right. Have you listened to Mark Maron's podcast? Yes. Did you listen to it in the early days, in like 2010 or whenever he started? I may have listened to some of the older ones. It has a very similar feel to this podcast. It was him kind of finding, trying to find a direction, yeah. talking to his friends. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He's definitely an influence. Sure. And actually, when I listen to podcasts, I usually stick with them when I think to myself, oh, no, no, I, I can contribute to this. I want to talk to, I want to, <laughs> I want to add to what you're saying. And, and, um, I think he's a really smart guy and I love it when I know something that he doesn't know. And I'm just like, yeah, I know that Mark Maron doesn't know it, but I know it. He can be but, a little intense sometimes, but I, in general, I, I feel like we could hang out. We have a lot of the same interests. All right. How do we make that happen? <laughs> does he have any tattoos? I don't know. Probably not. I'm going to guess he doesn't, but. Yeah. He doesn't seem like the type. All right. Well, if, if, uh, if, if Mark Maron's tattoo artist is, uh, listening to this, tell him I'll that we're looking can, for him. See if I can track him down. I would have more luck contacting the Doug Stanhope podcast than a Mark Maron. I know that Doug Stanhope makes like a few thousand dollars a month just from people signing up to his Patreon page. But he's making enough money to pay his mortgage. If I could get a couple grand a month. <laughs> yeah, he sits in a, in a room and gets drunk and, and talks on a microphone. Patreon. Yeah, I contribute to, I contribute to a few of them. Um, the, and there's an artist out of California named Chet Czar. He has uh, like a dark art podcast. Okay. It's not my style of podcast. I like the content, the podcast, whatever. But I give him three bucks a month because I want to see him succeed, you know? And it's three dollars. It's three bucks, you know? It's like... It's not, that, it's not that big a deal. It adds up, though. It does add up for a lot of people. For me, in this particular time, I would have to pick and choose because, you know, you're already paying for whatever if you stream music or if you stream TV or if you stream, you know, like all these things you have to start. They start to add up after a while. I subscribed to his Patreon and canceled Paramount Plus the same month. That seems like a reasonable thing to do. Yeah. Paramount Plus was $4.99. His is three bucks. I was like, yeah. the only reason I had Paramount Plus is so I could watch Ink Master. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> no. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> it's a callback. See, I brought that back. I love it when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> it's the absolute truth. Um, but it's not on anymore. So, hey, um, I got to take a shower and shave my entire torso. That's what you got to do when you have famous cartoonists tattooing you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed myself. Um, it, was, it was great to catch up with you. Later, man. Bye. That was Ben. It was great catching up with him and learning more about his life before and since our timelines intersected so very long ago. I feel like there are a lot of lessons to be learned from this one. You know, like taking initiative not being afraid to get your hands dirty, never stop learning, and stuff like that. But a big one that you don't hear all the time is 
put it in the calendar, like when he physically added an appointment to the tattoo guy's calendar. I realize you can't always do that, but if you have access to someone's phone, you may want to start doing that. Seriously, though, you know what I mean. Find a way to ensure that the appointment happens. Where there's a will, as they say. Some other trite pearl of wisdom. Thanks for being on the show, Ben. And thank you for listening to Feel Free to Deviate. I truly appreciate any time that you're willing to spend with me. You can find Ben at benlacata.com or oxbowtattoo.com. He's also on Instagram and Pinterest, at burnbridge. Search for Problem with Dragons on Spotify and Bandcamp if you want to check them out. And when you're done with that, you and all your friends and acquaintances should go over to at feelfreetodeviate on Instagram to check me out and like things and share them. Stuff like that. I'm pretty sure the next guest is Juliana Funkhauser. She's another former Wellesley student who's worked at gaming companies and design firms, but she stopped doing that to become a master of fine arts. Find out why someone would do that in two weeks. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. Gobble, gobble. Gobble, gobble.